Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Apex of Man podcast. We're having a pretty relaxed discussion today about Jordan Peterson and the 12 rules for life and how he, as a figure, changed both my life and Arsh's life. It's It's been a long time coming, this episode, and lately, you know, between a ton of things, Arsh and I have been really, really busy. And it's been a little complicated to kind of keep track of the the podcast and, and maintain the rhythm that we had before the summer. But we're definitely trying to to pick that back up again. So we do apologize if we haven't been present in the past few weeks. But I think this episode is really going to to be something positive and, and hopefully makes up for, for our absence. Yeah, definitely. So going back to the topic, we wanted to talk about Jordan Peterson. Nothing in specific, more of the impact he had both in our lives and what the impact we think he had on the world. So I think let's start on a more personal level first, like with Deo, for example, when did you first come across with his content or his character? That would have been probably, well, at this point, maybe six, six or maybe five years ago. Uh, it was a time in my life when I was looking for answers, when I was really lost and I was looking for answers. Academically, I was very unmotivated. Uh, my family was going through a very rough time. My parents were in the process of separating. I didn't feel that I had many close relationships with friends or, or family or anybody. And I didn't have a lot of people to to turn to. So I started, well, like most of us at this point, we turn to YouTube, we turn to the internet and start looking for answers. Sometimes it's, you find great things and sometimes you go down some crazy ass rabbit holes and you end up part of a cult or a gang and then it goes to hell really fast. But I was, I was fortunate enough to, to encounter Jordan Peterson. I think initially it was uh, probably through, through a political video or, or a compilation of some sort. And that's usually what they say that you go in for, for the politics or for the clickbaity two minute video, but then you stay for the religious lectures and then the really deep discussions about morality and consciousness and all of these things. And during that time, I, I was going to therapy and there was, kind of one theme that kept popping up and was the fact that I didn't have a very strong father figure or masculine role model at that moment in my life. So I, I kind of automatically turned to Jordan Peterson and, and latched onto that. And with his teachings and his values and the way he kind of bridged that relationship, especially between responsibility and meaning and, you know, the standing up straight with your shoulders back and facing life courageously that gave me that boost, that courage, that spark I needed to to start building my own masculine role model and and a, a value structure that led me in in a much better direction. Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of people would find that they first discovered Jordan Pearson during that political scandal that happened in was it 2017, 2018. But honestly, that has become like maybe the smallest part of the impact he's had on the internet community and in the entire world just almost a happy accident that that happened but for me personally when i first encountered him i think it was the same five or six years ago but at first like you said it was mainly just the clickbait political videos maybe one or two lectures one thing i did notice is that i absolutely fell in the way he talked in the way he communicated his ideas because he did he does one thing i don't see a lot of people do is that whenever he's presenting an idea he he almost digresses for a brief moment to present the sub clauses that he think may be relevant and the doubts that people may have about that. 
which is a form of uh, talking which I think I've adopted. I've not perfected it because I think I tend to ramble and make it more confusing than it needs to be. But as someone who likes like the logical structure of the way people talk, and that's something he says as well, like be concise with your speech, I really appreciated that. And that's one thing that made me think, right, this is a smart man. I would really like the way he talks. And I think being more like that would be something I'd like to do myself. But for me, it was really, I knew he was going to be like a mainstay in my life during this one period of my life. I think it was the first year of university. I just like gone out of a breakup and I was just partying nonstop. And then I finally came across his book. And I think for like the four weeks I was reading that book, I was being like the most productive I've probably ever been in my life. And because of that, I realized that his work can actually help and it can definitely make an impact on your life if you, you know, say, take note of what he says and try to implement, implement it into your life. And now going off that, let's more talk about what he says rather than who he is. So I don't know, what was the first thing he said that really stuck with you? Man, I have watched so many hours of of footage of this guy, lectures, uh, speeches, talks, interviews, that kind of parsing that out at this moment in time would be a little difficult for me. But I think at least the concept of, of manning up, of really standing up straight, being courageous, that the life your life has meaning there's there's a purpose to it and you are you are called upon to find that purpose and and work relentlessly towards it it's something that in the beginning of my life i again we've talked about this i had applied a lot in the academic world and then disregarded it for for the last few years of high school and and not having that and not having any other sphere in my life where i was courageously moving forward really takes a toll on you so when when I heard this, it was the first time I, I heard something like this because I think society has really uh, kind of walked away from these these values. And when the first time I heard of it, something clicked. Uh, and and, it, and again, I, I reiterate what you just said. The way he speaks, even though he sounds like uh, Kermit the Frog, and they keep making memes and memes and memes about about his uh, kind of squeaky, high pitched voice. There's something about the old school expressions he uses, the way he speaks. Maybe it's a little bit his Canadian accent or something like that. It's just, it's like a stern father. Um, it's a stern father who, who bloody hell, he really knows how to explain certain concepts and ideas. And sometimes in his lectures, it's like he goes off on tangents and then there's like 45 minutes off on a tangent and then wraps it back in with the in core concept of the lecture. And it's just fascinating to understand how all of these things are connected and how it he truly makes a case for the fact that life has meaning. I think for me, it was exactly the same. It was being told that right now you pathetic, you could be pathetic, but that doesn't matter because you definitely have the potential to change that. But what you have to remember is that if you don't, then I'm sorry, you are pathetic. So being told that the potential is what you have and the ability to take action is what really attracted me and no doubt multiple other men. To his saying because it's something that you don't hear enough people may tell you about all the good you could do but they don't tell you about the bad that will happen if you don't really don't there's one thing he emphasizes in many of his videos a lot of titles maybe clickbaity but they're like what's wrong with the relationship between men and women they discuss like what the like 
the inability to harness your power as a guy will lead to in the downfalls of your relationship with the whole he also brings up a lot in a lot of his lectures the whole idea of the peter pan phase i think about a man who's living in wonderland so that's what i like he criticizes anyone who doesn't take full potential of what they're given and that's something everyone needs to hear you can see it in every lecture he gives in the, every live lecture i mean because they're over, overwhelmingly male from what he tells i think 70 percent of his audience on youtube is male and as he puts it every time he starts talking everyone's faces just lights up like they've been told something that they haven't heard in years like this is the new messiah <laughs> so yeah. i think that's his true attractive feature but another thing that he did for me is that he acted a bit of, like a gateway towards well using my potential trying to find a way to harness it and i think that came into me dwelling into the self-help world and then trying to read more about it different books and stuff and from then on the more you read the more i try to implement and then i noticed my life get better my relationship improve and it all started with that one <laughs> political scandal <laughs> somehow yeah it's, it's so, yeah. really it's it's really interesting because I'm in a sense I'm really glad but really disappointed in in having experienced Jordan Peterson as kind of again my gateway into the self-help world if you want to call it that. I think his his is not necessarily self-help but to me it's much deeper than that. But that's what's interesting about it. But when you when you read Jordan Peterson first, that's like the, the cream of the cream of the top. That's the, the most full and rich a full body picture that you can get of of life um i i believe because all of the all the, the connections he makes to religion philosophy mythology social current social issues history and it's just absolutely psychology as well because he's a clinical psychologist it's it's fascinating and when you read any other self-help book usually falls short um so it was a bit of a double-edged sword it was incredibly positive because i think you build a great foundation but then there's also that risk of, you know, wanting more, wanting more, seeking more self-help, seeking more self-help. And maybe starting at that point, uh, you know, you're going to be a little disappointed with with a few of the other things you you encounter. Right. No, I totally get that. And from then on, that has been the case. <clears throat> Any like when it comes to communicating yourself verbally, I don't think anyone can live up to that. When it comes to writing, I think there have been other books which could be almost equal, I reckon. But when it comes to on the stage, no one can talk like that man does. But you mentioned it there, uh, how he introduced you to like aspects of religion, right? Yeah. Can you explain like in what sense? Well, he always, again, they keep asking him, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? And, and he, I really like his answers. One of his answers is uh, I act as if God exists. Uh, so he doesn't dwell in the stupidities of, okay, well, maybe there is a God or maybe there isn't a God. It's it's not necessarily something that we can prove, but he finds value in the in the value hierarchy of religion that has constructed our civilization from the beginning. And that was a moment in time when I was looking for religious answers. And uh, I, I consider myself a pretty rational person and I like to kind of understand what I'm following and truly be a, be a good ambassador of, of whatever philosophy I'm ascribing to. And, and so when I started uh, encountering him, uh, his, his ideas, especially when he made a reference to religion, it was really interesting because he analyzed it from a lot of different angles. 
So to connect to those religious stories with current issues, again, uh, history, all of these things, and, and you would see the evolution of these ideas. And it's not it's not a coincidence that, you know, this this book that has been with us for more than some stories are even older than 10,000 years. Uh, some of the stories in the Bible, it's, it's not a coincidence that it's still with us and it's the foundation of, of Western civilization. Um, things like <laughs> civilizations have have entire civilizations, entire empires have been completely destroyed, but this book has, has lived on. And there was something about that that called to me, and and that was the gateway into into a lot of religion. And, and sometimes I actually, when I go to church now, or, or when I speak to people who are supposed to be religious uh, scholars or have more religious knowledge than I do, I feel disappointed. Because it's such a, maybe Pearson doesn't have all the religious knowledge. Of course, he's not a theologian. He's not, none of that. But he takes it so seriously and goes into, at least he's, he's mentioned about the Cain and Abel story, for example. It's a few paragraphs. And he has delved deeply into it for years and years and years and years and years. And when you hear him talking about those things and the, the detail of knowledge that he has in, in religious matters is just fascinating and truly hooks you. Uh, and that was definitely one of the one of the gateways for me. Right. I think I agree because I, his interpretation of Christianity is one I had never seen before. And I think one that it was my favorite for the main reason that he almost he realizes that you got to use it as a bit of a tool to find a way to make yourself better without removing the personal aspect of it, because he doesn't. If you ever in, I've seen a lecture when someone asked him about Jesus and he just broke down into tears because he didn't know i think he was asked about do you believe in the divinity of christ and he's like i don't know <laughs> i really don't and so it's always that you can't you don't have to sacrifice the personal aspect but it's almost a, as a, you have to approach religion in a Newton, newtonian way of thinking it's true enough as so it can be useful maybe all technicalities and logical parts don't add up but there's a reason it has helped so many people those are the parts you've got to focus on. They're stories, and those stories from which you can extract, um, extract ideas and morals are basically tools to help yourself improve as a person. So yeah. I really, really like the interpretation of this. Another thing that I found that Jordan Preston did really well was he, he gave me like enough courage to be able to face the fact that your life needs to be hard in order to be meaningful. He gave me enough reasons to know why my life should not be easy breezy, everything's given to me, and in order to pursue things that are actually more difficult and challenging. Because everyone's like, I always thought that like the goal of life was to make it, make yourself as happy as possible. And a logical way to think about that is to maybe make it as easy as possible, you know? Yeah. But he always says that happiness is not a goal of life, it should always be a byproduct of meaning, which should be the actual goal of life. And when you realize something, you gotta, when you realize that, you gotta say, well, that's way harder. <laughs> That's way harder than just finding pure happiness. Uh, but his rationale, his reasoning is just so concrete and you can't argue with the guy. It works because once you start doing it, you realize, yeah, it does work, doesn't it? Yeah. So I don't know. It's really interesting because, again, you and I, we've, you know, we were born in the West. We were born in a certain degree of, of stability, of comfort, of luxury. And and our lives, I mean, of course, we've had our ups and downs, or we've, we've had our difficulties, but, but again, th this idea has been sold to us, and we've been comfortable enough to have, to have accepted this idea that happiness is the goal, that comfort is the goal, that luxury is the goal. 
and and I think that is such a destructive thing that is being taught in in today's society, and it's been taught for decades now. And and people, again, if you have a little bit of discomfort, people immediately feel like their lives are crumbling at the seams, and and nothing makes sense, and they have these anxiety disorders and depression disorders, and and they just they just keep rising and rising, and young people are just every year it seems that it gets worse and you continue setting your goals on on these like stupid superficial short-term things that that culture has decided are valuable like money or women or or drugs or whatever it is or success or fame and and people don't don't recognize that yeah you, you don't have to take a pill if you feel down there's, there's, there's not a problem with you. That's actually the default setting. That probably is the default setting. But we've, we've been so blessed in that this, this uh, unprecedented economic prosperity and unprecedented uh, social change and everything else that we've had the luxury to be able to think like that, to think that this, this is actually the state of affairs. But again, you go back to Venezuela, you go back to India, for example, and man, you see poverty and misery everywhere, everywhere you turn. And and a a lot of the time, those people are really content because they find something deeper. They find a meaning that is that transcends all of that suffering. And and I think we should kind of look more to that and look less to the celebrities and the people who are in Hollywood. It's true. And another thing that those people don't have is time. The time to the time is the comfort and luxury that's been provided to you. And the worst thing that's come out of that is that feeling of boredom. Boredom, people, boredom is like, they've said like an emotional spectrum. Boredom is just an inferior form of disgust, just like uh, irritation is an inferior form of rage. So, and disgust is a strong feeling. Disgust is there to keep you alive and keep you away from things that will kill you. And the people in India and Venezuela, like you mentioned, they don't have time for boredom. And if they don't have time for those like strong negative feelings, they can find themselves focusing on the things they do enjoy because they appreciate that much so much more. But with all our limited time, if it's not spent doing something that brings us immediate happiness 24 seven, everything just feels like disgust. <laughs> yeah. So it's no wonder that society nowadays, uh, happiness is on the low. And what, what do you do against that boredom? How do you inoculate yourself against that? Well, I mean, the easiest, maybe the most ridiculous answer was, I would say, do something hard. Like, again, another thing he mentions, like do it for the right reasons. Right. But for example, like, I've found myself in that situation where like boredom just leads to you doing something that cures the boredom, but it'll, I'm sure it'll come back tomorrow and it's not going to get any better for curing it today. So I actually couldn't tell you the, what the best cure is besides the things we've already mentioned in the podcast, like just find a ways to harness that time in order to improve yourself. But yeah. do you have a specific answer in mind when you ask the question? No, not particularly. It's something that I grapple with every day. That's that's some a question I really love asking other people because it helps me. It's it's really hard because I do feel that in those when you're bored, you tend to kind of drift into the the negative vices that that you may have, that be either drinking, partying, YouTube, pornography. All, these things start kind of pulling at your attention and pulling at your desire when when you're in in that bored phase. So I, I usually, I don't know, it helps to, to schedule your days, man, to, to really overschedule your days in a sense. And well, the, the, the big ticket items, I think if you're, you're eating well, you're sleeping well, you're working out, you're seeing your friends and, and connecting with people on, a, on an individual level, 
really connecting with them, not going out to a 50 person party where music is blasting, like actually sitting down, maybe like we like we do in the summer, we cook up some barbecues, enjoy the hell out of that, go to the pool, you know, that, that mm-hmm. those types of plans. Um, I think that really helps. Right. I think basically is what you're saying. Make sure that there's no time in your day for boredom. But yeah. what, what you said was really interesting of how people lead to negative vices because no one or at least very few people would go, oh, I'm bored. I'm going to like work for four hours now. If anything, you're bored of working for four hours. So what you say is definitely true. Try and you sk- try to make sure you schedule a day enough to avoid boredom. Make no time for it. Yeah. But now I want to focus on like what I thought was like the pinnacle of Jordan Peterson's work, which is his book, 12 Rules of Life. No doubt that we'll be discussing his new book, 12 More Rules for Life, and maybe even an individual podcast for the first book. But just a quick summary of like what are the biggest things you took out of it? Because obviously you can't talk about Jordan Peterson without not talking about his book. Yes, definitely. I, when I read the book, I wasn't as deep into Jordan Peterson as I am today. So the book was one of the first real exposures I, I got of, of his work. And I think that was really a good place to start. Uh, I read it a, a long time ago. Uh, must have been probably four years, maybe over four years now. And <clears throat> it was completely mind blowing. Um, there's something about rules that intrinsically apply and, and appeal to me because I like set structure, I like order. And and the first book, again, being an antidote to chaos, there was so much chaos in my life at that point that it was something that I didn't know I needed, but it was, again, one of the books I recommend to everybody and whenever I can, you know, what books do you recommend? 12 Rules for Life. Like, stop what you're doing now. I don't care where you are. I don't need where you have to be. I don't I don't care where you need to go. Buy the book, start reading it tonight, and then come back to me. It's so powerful. It's it's incredibly powerful. And again, that the core concept of aligning the, the meaning and responsibility and that you need to increase that responsibility to increase the meaning of your life and forget about the, the stupid superficial crap in terms of the happiness all of that stuff that if it comes great enjoy it live the moment at that time fantastic but plan ahead have vision engage in things that are really 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 hard um and you'll be better off for it you'll be better off for it and and that's that's what you have to do because you have one life man we have a mere 85 years on this earth you can't spend it doing other things and you can't you can't just you know you have one chance that's it you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say okay this is meaningless Great. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Maybe it is meaningless, but if you act as if life is meaningless, it's going to suck for you. It's going to be a really bad 85 years. You're probably going to die less. You're probably going to live half that life. You're going to end up in a ditch or killed or drunk somewhere. And, you know, so it's, you make that conscious choice. And this book allowed me to make, make like set the, the stage to make that conscious choice and say, okay, I don't know if God is real. I don't know if religion is completely true. I don't know if life has meaning. But from the way I can see it, if you don't live your life as if it's meaningful and if you don't live your life as if God exists, your life is going to be horrendous. Exactly. We, we were built so that those questions come secondary to the more important questions that allow us to be happy enough to actually ask those in the first place. Yeah. But I think I, want, I wanted to ask kind of cutting in in terms of mm-hmm. maybe we can again, you can maybe do a macro view of, of how the book impacted you, but kind of maybe laser in into a few of the rules. I think that would be pretty interesting. 
Right, definitely. I think everyone has anyone who likes Jordan Peterson. They always have like, oh, what's your favorite rule? And then everyone's yeah. got their own story or whatever. But I mean, I've got a few. But I think the one that's been most helpful for me, especially recently, is I think it was rules. Wait, rules. Which one? The, the your house in perfect order. Oh, the children one. I think that's rule five. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the rule I'm talking about is rule five. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And I think in the chapter, he does dwell down on parenting, tries to make that case. But I've almost extrapolated that into any sort of relationship or caring or loving relationship, whether that be friends or family or like an intimate relationship with someone. And I interpret that in the sense of you don't want to do things that you may think are you know, you're right. You want to do them, just something you want to do, but it's actively making the person you love dislike you and drawing you further apart. It almost seems obvious, but people don't realize this. They have to put their the relationship sometimes in before their desire to do certain things. And I think that's what comes in with the children. The example he shows is like, if your child hasn't cleaned his room, like make his clean room. Don't just like say, oh, he's going to eventually, because then slowly you're building that hatred and you're not dealing with that hatred and it'll fester. So that comes true with any relationship with your friends. If your friends is doing something that you don't like, tell them about it, confront them, see if you can reach a middle ground. But if you just keep letting them doing, if you keep letting them do it, I'm sure you'll grow apart slowly, very yeah. slowly perhaps, but eventually things will fade out. And so that's one rule. Kind of expanding on that. Excuse me for interrupting. It's the the fact that today it's so easy to be anonymous with your with your feedback on people or with your your gripes about other individuals. There's a lot of people that, okay, I don't like the way someone behaved or something, and they they text it. And you don't even have to stand up and look the person in the eye and, and really establish, like, this is important. I want to talk about it. Let's go through it. Um, it's, it's so important. It's so important. And, again, I think it's really interesting how you were able to extrapolate that uh, those values and those teachings to, to other things. Right. I think that's another... Like it's another part of the beauty of this rule because each chapter starts with a very vague statement. And from then you always make up your ideas. Oh, what could it mean? What could it mean? And then he starts to run into details, but obviously he doesn't cover everything you can about those vague statements because the point of being vague is that there's a lot to say about them. So from then you can pull out ideas from his. And that's what I try to do with a lot of his rules as well. But now I want to talk about you. What is like one rule you could focus on if you had to? Uh, man, the I recently reread the book on Audible, and and I truly recommend it. The way he speaks about the book and he gets really emotional in certain parts is just outstanding. And going back to the book, I just realized that there were so many rules that I hadn't truly understood, or maybe I'm in a moment now that I am able to understand them better. And it just blew me away. The book blew me away again. And I remember the first time reading it, the the stand up straight with your shoulders back. It's so simple. It's so simple, but he started talking about freaking lobsters, man. And I was like, man, this is crazy. And I started talking to other people about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm reading this book and it's a, it's like a self-help, but it's like there's religion and the first chapter is all about lobsters and there's a bird and in a, the bird in the house and, and people thought I was crazy. And it's just, <laughs> how can you start a self-help book talking about lobsters? I don't know, but this man pulled it off. Uh, so that's that's definitely one that I think a lot of people go back to, and it's become a meme again with the entire lobster thing, King Lobster, his ties and everything. Uh, but that's definitely something that I think goes a lot deeper, and it talks about those hierarchies and how to move up a hierarchy, and that hierarchies are not again, as he says, they're not a 
offshoot of capitalism or Western civilization or our culture or anything. Hierarchies are deeply, deeply built within us. And we have a, a mechanism, the, it's the serotonin system, that keeps track of our position in the hierarchy. And that boosts or takes away uh, positive emotion. So you need to understand that the world is intrinsically hierarchical. You need to find a hierarchy where you can succeed, where you can excel, where you have passion in, and then move up it with courage, freaking working hard, elbow grease, pulling up, pulling yourself up, and... And it truly takes you to places that you wouldn't have imagined otherwise. But recently, when I was reading the book, the there's a few chapters that touch a lot on religion, a lot on, on uh, the figure of Jesus in particular. I think that was probably rule seven, if I'm not mistaken, the pursuit of what is meaningful, not what is expedient. That rule is just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. That's, that's where he really... Con- kind of establishes the fact of the responsibility and meaning argument. And he goes through a ton of mythology, a ton of religious stories, a lot of Christian imagery and values. And it's it's really helped me when I when I read that again, it was it was just absolutely outstanding. The 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 way he links things and it it's just another way of viewing the world that that I needed to to be exposed to. And I, I wanted to mention the the do not bother children when they're skateboarding, because I know that's one of your, your favorite rules as well. Recently, I, I forgot entirely about that rule. I, I thought it was just a, like a gimmick chapter, but it's really not. So if there's something about that rule that you want to that you wanna mention, I know it's one of your, your top ones. Yeah, but I don't know where to start. But actually, before that, I want to mention mm-hmm. one thing about you said about rule one, about the stand-up straight and with your shoulders back. Because I find that that rule is, first of all, it's the one, the easiest one to do. Because in fact, you can do it the second you read that line. Yes, That's it. you can literally do it the second you read your line. And you so feel like me, you need to do it. Right? Yeah, exactly. When exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think the simplicity, simplicity of that rule was beautiful. And second of all, you do that for three days, and you'll definitely notice a change. You'll definitely, and so will people. So will people. Like I was just like doing. I was just walking in the gym because I'm used to doing things like that. <laughs> and I got this friend who was like, <laughs> "Man, I go intimidated when you walk by me like that. <laughs> like I'm just standing there." <laughs> But yeah, that boost of confidence and just holding your head up as high as you can and being able to do it so easily and people just don't. I don't know. Well, I know why. People don't know about it. But that's why that was the most beautiful part about that rule for me. But going back to the don't bother your children while they're skateboarding, I think there's so much in that chapter that you can take out of it, which isn't just that line. One of my interpretations took it as, again, facing death in a way, managing risk to a point where death is not the worst case option there's things worse than death for example living living an awful life in which you're in hell that is worse than death i think that's kind of what he's trying to say you can find a way to manage risk and know what your goals are in life and i don't know not live in pure comfort and don't let other people live in pure comfort again when he mentions children you can always take away and turn that into any relationship so i, th- I think that really helped me want to get courage because in order to take risk you need that courage and second, yeah. to realize what actual priorities were. Again, going into the whole thing about comfort not being the ultimate goal. So sometimes you're going to scrape your knee. Sometimes you're going to break an arm. But sometimes it's worth it. So I think that's the most beautiful thing about that chapter. That you can take so much away from it. And you can go so deep or you can go so shallow. But either way, there's definitely something meaningful to get out of it. And it really reminds me of parenting today in general. This, this term, the helicopter parenting, where they're so overprotective and so on you that they don't allow you 
to become an individual to prosper and to truly engage with the world in any real sense. There's there's a lot of that, and I don't know what your case was. I, I would be interested in knowing, but at least my parents, you know, my mother had a very difficult time um, becoming pregnant with with me, and she was she was very very old when she had me. She was 38, and during most of her life, she thought she wasn't going to be able to have children. And so the the combination Pearson has also talked about this: the combination of being an old parent. Of being of it being really hard because you're an old parent to, to to get pregnant, and also the fact that in today's society people are having less children, so kind of in a cynical way, the more children you have, the less attention uh, you give to to one individual. So it, it's more separated, and and the, your children are able to to become individuals and and truly just you know go ahead and, and scrape their knees and eat mud and do all the crazy things that children are supposed to do. So I think definitely that was a thing that affected me. My, my parents weren't that helicopter. I know I have some friends and, and some family members who've really had a rough time and, and you truly see certain effects of those. But but my parents, in a sense, again, overprotective in certain cases. Again, we were living in Venezuela where it's it's a really dangerous country and and it's it's hard not to be overprotective and a little paranoid, but I really took away from that uh, a lot of lessons on on parenting and not only parenting but applying it in your own life. Um, discomfort, discomfort is important. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I don't know if we've spoken we've probably spoken about this in, in the podcast, but when I climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, the last day the last day was rough when we we left at 2 a.m. to to hike to the peak. And we got there maybe at, at 8 or 9 a.m. And it was a day where I was just walking straight for 12, 13 hours. And you would go up and, and everything would would feel horrible, would feel absolutely horrendous. It, w- it was cold. It was bitter. My, my legs were hurting from the entire 12-day hike. And a lot of people were coming down as I was going up and they were just quitting. A lot of people crying, a lot of people... You know, just completely throwing up, people just going down and, and, and quitting the entire thing. And and that's where you have to make, that's one of the moments in my life where you have to make that conscious choice. Am I going to continue? Am I going to strap up, keep moving and, and suffer and, and, you know, skateboard and freaking do that ramp and, and, and crack my knees or whatever it is? Or am I going to stay, quit and go down? And it's so tempting. And the voice of quitting is so tempting and it's so sweet and it's so nice when when you hear it. But but the reward on the other side is is unimaginable. But see, I think I think that's the thing about this rule, although the reward, I'm sure, was unimaginable. It was in your head. It wasn't real. It's not a tangible thing. But the comfort of eating crisps, I mean, that's a biological feeling. You get that going back down, like staying on your couch, I think. There, he makes it evident in that rule. It's an analysis of risk aversion. It's an analysis of facing death. It's an analysis of, I don't know, like just realizing what situations are worth it and what aren't. And in that situation, you realize that this was. And the less you do that, the more kids will start to think that situations like those aren't. They'll be like, oh, why shouldn't I go back? My parents told me danger was bad. My parents told me feeling discomfortable was something you should avoid something you should always do so it almost everything ties in this book that's the beauty of it it's telling one cohesive story with each chapter 
And it so, kind of applies. It, it kind of applies a lot. The do not bother children when they're skateboarding to the current situation now, or at least the the pandemic we've spent so long uh, in. It's a little bit of that of that you know people. Some people take more risks. Some people take less risks. Some people are more comfortable with um, you know researching certain information. Some people are are more gullible in certain ways. Some you know it's it. Every person is different. And of course, no, we're we're not all gonna be like uh, freaking I don't know ben, the the what was the name of the dude who jumped off the stratosphere the Red Bull guy Felix Baumgartner, the guy who jumped out. We're not all gonna be that dude, but I think generally taking more risks is a good thing. Right, because the alternative just it's being a potato. <laughs> it's being a potato. That's it. It's, it's Netflix and potatoing. That's gonna be your slogan. Don't be a potato. Don't be a potato. Hey. <laughs> Apex of man, don't be a potato. <laughs> but yeah, that, I feel like that's the impact one person has had. It has been positive. It's people becoming more self-actualized. It's people realizing that they got to do more for a themselves, more importantly, this world. And I think that overall is just going to have a positive impact on the entire planet. Because in, in an individual level, if everyone wants to try and do more money for meaningful things, we're just going to get better pace, better place slowly, isn't it? Yeah, I, so I, I mean, think, has has your has your um, I don't know if I would call it obsession, but your your reading and researching and kind of exposing yourself to all of Jordan Peterson's ideas and values has that impacted the people around you? Oh, definitely, one hundred percent. And that's it. That's a small change you think you're making for yourself, which you are, and will definitely benefit yourself. But in reality, the more you benefit yourself, the people around you will be happier for it. And it will reach their lives. And then I'm sure that will eventually reach someone else's through butterfly effect or whatever. And slowly, the world just gets better. So there's really no downfall in trying to make yourself better either. Which is another thing Jordan Peterson says says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the beautiful things because one of the criticisms he gets is that, you know, you're only addressing uh, young men and you're only uh, focusing on this individualistic approach to life and I don't I don't think that's true I think that's a moot point because I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in the lives of so many other people around me when someone improves that the positive repercussion that it has on people around you who actually want the best for yourself is incredible and if they don't, if they react negatively, those people shouldn't be in your life. It's right. as simple as that. Right. There's no other way around it. And and again, in his at least this this book is a little more kind of focused on the individual and the 12 more rules for life, which I recently finished, is a little more communitarian, which I think is a is a again it's the hero story of going out into the unknown courageously, finding the gold and bringing it back and sharing it with the community. It's the full story. It's the full picture. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I really like. They the both books balance themselves really nicely, and and it's 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 so important that the, the effect that it's had. I, we have we have friends who recently have made crazy turnarounds. I mean, we've had uh, Javier Mesquita on the on the podcast, for example. His turnaround in less than what has it been a year, maybe something like that. It's been insane. I haven't seen anything like it in my life. Right, and it's it's so positive. It, every time I think about it, it just brings a smile to my face. Yeah, I'm sure if you ask your parents, they're over the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a small example of that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think wrapping up, all we have to say is oh, one day we'll try to get Jordan Pearson on the podcast. That may be shooting a bit too high, but it definitely would be a dream. 
Yeah, but, I wouldn't know what to ask him though. That would be crazy. Oh, that would have to be like seven podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, on that note, this has been another great episode, guys. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll see you for the next one. Peace.